Welcome, I'm Brett Hutchins from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and you're listening to episode 40 of the Media Sport podcast series. It's a pleasure to be recording again on Zoom. And thank you to Dr. Simon Troon for his excellent preparatory and production work that is making the series possible this year. This episode's guest is Dr. Dan Henhawk. Dan is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. On my reckoning, he is the second Canadian resident to speak with me for the series, following on from Danielle Pierce, who spoke about the Paralympics and critical disability studies back in episode 18. I asked to speak with Dan because his research strives to privilege Indigenous ways of knowing and of being in the world. I first came across his work in a 2019 chapter titled Indigenous Peoples, Sport and Sustainability, which is co-authored with Richard Norman and published in the volume Sport, Development and Sustainability. The chapter, in some ways at least, points towards Dan's wider research agenda, which is to trouble modern Western conceptualisation of leisure through a critical Indigenous lens. You can read Dan's research in the International Review of Qualitative Research in the Journal of Exercise, Movement and Sport, as well as in his PhD thesis titled A War Between Stories, Leisure, Colonialism and My Struggles to Reconcile My Indigeneity. I recommend his work to listeners. Before we commence our chat, I'd like to acknowledge the fact that I am speaking on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and that I speak as an uninvited migrant to these lands where sovereignty was never granted nor ceded. Dan, welcome to the Media Sport Podcast Series. Thanks very much for having me, Brett. Pleasure to be here. I can also acknowledge where I'm coming from. I'm actually a Gunnigahaga person or a Mohawk person, originally from the Six Nations of the Grand River in southern Ontario, which is the province to the east of us, but I'm actually coming from Winnipeg. Um, and I'm actually, a, I guess, a visitor as well. These lands were the original homelands of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, the Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, as well as the homeland of the Métis Nation as well. So just wanted to acknowledge all these places that we are situated in and coming from. Now, preparing for the interview, I discovered that you, you know, that you love basketball. Why does basketball matter to you? And how does it relate to your place in the world and your experience of sport and leisure? Oh, that's a great question. Thanks very much for that. Um, I love talking about basketball. <laughs> <laughs> basketball um, was, my, was my first love in terms of sport. It was introduced to me as a young child, and it was something that... Um, it, was a, it was such a weird phenomenon, and that maybe every child experiences this was something that they loved, but I just, it was just pure joy and elation when I started playing basketball. And I can remember actually uh, being at a friend's house where he was showing me how to shoot the ball and he was doing all these tricks with the ball and even it was just sort of just throwing off the backboard and it was just pure joy. But that introduction to basketball, as I came to realize over time, was really set me down a path that I... Well, obviously, didn't quite expect at that time in my life, but it was a path that made me question, I guess, certain norms after having grown up on a reserve in Canada, and really sort of was a was a an activity that how can I say this? It, it was a struggle for me to sort of figure out what to do after it ended, after I start stopped playing. And I think at that point in my life, which would have been 
in my late teens and going off to university, um, I really started to struggle sort of with my indigeneity. And part of that was, I think, because of the ending of my basketball playing career. And then once I sort of moved through my undergraduate studies and then came back to my master's basketball, although I didn't focus on it in my work, helped me to sort of think through some of my participation in sport and then some of the the issues and conundrums around being Indigenous and race and racism uh, that were within the sport and within my participation in sport in general that I, I really didn't you know have a critical consciousness of when I was younger. So I, I absolutely love basketball, but I also have a bit of a love-hate relationship with basketball, as I do with all sports currently. <laughs> it's an interesting, and it, that, that tension, you know, goes through a lot of what you write about, and I'm, I'm assuming teach about, we'll come to that later. But for listeners who can't see what I'm seeing, there's, you know, behind Dan at the moment, there's a couch, and on top of the couch is a basketball. So it's sort of, you know, <laughs> like it, it, that, that tension will resonate not perhaps in the way it does for you but that tension resonates for a lot of people who take a critical perspective on sport and are prepared to embrace perspectives beyond you know whatever the mainstream or dominant one might be and it sort of leads to your article and I yeah and this is the one I that, that really sort of hit home for me which is titled My Critical Awakening, A Process of Struggles and Decolonising Hope. And that one's published in the International Review of Qualitative Research. And it's, it's a very self-aware and self-reflexive piece about locating oneself and colonising and decolonising discourses as an Indigenous person. Now, while I know it's difficult to summarise in short form for a podcast, could you tell us a bit about the article and probably more importantly, the story behind it or, you know, how, how it came to be and, and what you're saying with it. Sure. That article was written when I was going through my uh, first years of my PhD and I was really, I think, trying to reconcile, which I think is the most appropriate word, different episodes in my past around being complicit, I think, in colonialism in a number of different ways. Everything from how I thought about the world and things that I said and ways that I acted and how that came to be, particularly through my sport participation. And, and that was mostly because sport was such a huge influence on my family's life, but then also in our community at Six Nations. And I don't think um, we, well, we didn't really realize sort of the impact of sport and the narratives that are attached to sport and then how that sort of added to broader discourses around indigeneity and whiteness and what it means to be Canadian. And so I think a lot of that uh, writing and thinking that I did through my PhD was focused on really trying to figure out what had happened, so to speak, through my sport experiences and, and trying to figure out what colonialism was and sort of how it operated through my sport experiences. And so much of it came back to the narratives that sort of swirled around sport that I inhabited as I engaged in sport. And a lot of that revolved around how I was participating, you know, uh, sort of buying into the competitive aspect of sport, as well as, you know, some of the, the masculine elements of sport, you know, buying into all the tropes around merit and success and hard work and dedication that uh, really sort of shaped how I saw the world. 
But when competitive sport ended for me at the end of my high school career, and I sort of had to start making my way through the world, really start to question you know, a lot of the things that I had learned through sport. And so I think my work related to that, that discussion around sport was very much an awakening, I guess, of coming to know things like racism and race and issues around gender and, and issues around very broadly capitalism and leisure, and then trying to figure out, you know, what is this thing called colonialism in a way that uh, I could understand it through my participation in sport. And I didn't have that sort of understanding or that, that consciousness of it. So really my my reflections uh, in that piece and my, my work was very much just trying to struggle through particularly what this issue of leisure is. And, and it started out as looking at my sport participation and looking at, you know, issues of race and indigeneity and how that sort of operated through sport. And then it sort of got bigger to sort of include, well, you know, if there's issues related to what it means to participate in sport and be Indigenous, then what are the much broader issues related to sport and recreation and leisure? What are the values that sort of guide those concepts? And But then how have those sort of acted upon Indigenous communities through the period of colonization? And then, you know, essentially affecting how we participated in a lot of things. And for me, you know, my interest was sport and recreation, and uh, and here I am now. <laughs> and look, you know, I take your point around, you know, in the Foucauldian sense, the disciplining practices of sport around, you know, certainly colonial systems and values. What I know of Canadian sport, I'm, which isn't huge, or what I've been reading in the past week suggests that, like Australia, you know, we're very big on diversity and inclusion, but we haven't actually taken the harder step, which is anti-racism, anti-sexism, and actually questioning the structure of what sport communicates. So, you know, is that, I suppose if you were then to connect that article with what you did in your PhD, how does your work on the Six Nations uh, of the Grand River community, which you've told us is where you're from? Yep. Okay, first of all, for listeners outside Canada, what is the Six Nations of the Grand River community who haven't read about it or haven't been to Canada? Where is it? And why is sport, you know, leisure and recreation important in, in the context of that community? So the Six Nations of the Grand River is a Haudenosaunee community. Uh, most people around the world would probably know the term Iroquois, but Haudenosaunee is the term that we call ourselves. It means people of the longhouse. And the Six Nations within our community are representative of, of six different First Nations that sort of made our, our community, our, our confederacy of peoples. And so that community um, is one of many Haudenosaunee communities in Ontario and the province of Quebec, as well as still in New York State and scattered in other places of the United States and Canada. So in a very, very brief history, uh, after the American Revolution, our people my community specifically sided with the British. There was other communities that sided with the French and others that sided with Americans and others that sided with the Dutch. But my community specifically sort of sided with the British. And once the revolution was over, we were sort of pushed back to the area which is now Southern Ontario after having been originally from the areas in, in Upper New York State. So anyway, our community is now currently in a place called Southwestern Ontario, which is where Toronto and the cities of Hamilton are. We're about an hour west of Toronto and about an hour from the border at Buffalo and a couple hours from Detroit. So we're, we're right in the heart of a lot of different peoples, a lot of different cultures and a lot of history 
relative to the history of North America, uh, really. And so our our history, because it it extends back to before the revolution, there's a lot of sort of baggage <laughs> that comes with that related to our engagement with settlers and then our, our engagement with colonialism, you know, over time. What's sort of interesting, I think, for Six Nations, particularly in relation to sport and recreation, is that um, we claim the sport of lacrosse. You know, it's something that we, we would say that, you know, it's from our culture and our history, even though there's lots of debate about that. But the history of lacrosse, particularly in Canada, has a key tie to sort of colonialism and how I would argue that modern sport was created. And and through that process of sort of appropriation and then reimagining and representation of, of lacrosse, you know, a lot of European values were sort of imprinted on that game, which then turned it into a modern sport. It was standardized and, and basically remodeled to sort of fit, you know, this burgeoning world of modern sport. So we have a long history in which sort of that interaction between settlers and our community occurred prior to things like the residential schools and sort of this very uh, top-down imposition of sort of European culture on our communities. So then really, if, if you go back far enough and you get into discussions around sort of the origins of leisure, particularly in, in North America, you can't separate that from sort of the beginnings of capitalism in in our context, as well as the Industrial Revolution and all the different stories and narratives that sort of float around those those eras. And um, my my work really was set on trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, again, what's the connection between leisure and colonialism? And then uh, if we were to take seriously the idea of trying to decolonize leisure, then how would we do that? Never got to the second question, but really sort of focused on trying to look at, you know, okay, so what has happened? And so much of it pointed to sort of again the 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 imposition of values around work, the imposition around you know things like uh, 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 sort of you know at the time burgeoning capitalist and neoliberal ideologies around how to engage in the world, you know how they look at the world as resources versus you know a relationship, to, you know the way that we looked at it, and so all that influence from my perspective had a profound effect on our communities and other indigenous peoples in North America in regards to sort of how we viewed ourselves and how we viewed the world. And and because of that change in culture or loss of culture, you know, so much of it was affected by the ways that we sort of then had to live in the world. But then through things like leisure and sport and, and recreation and culture, I think a lot of it was very insidious because everything was you know, sports enjoyable, exercise and physical activity and leisure are all things that, you know, people have fun doing. Um, and maybe you're not as critically conscious of, you know, how you're maybe reproducing, you know, dominant values and ideas as you're participating. So then, you know, compound that over centuries of engagement. Uh, and then you end up where this, in the situation of where we are now, which is in a community where I think, you know, if we were to really take a critical lens to sport in our communities, there would be uh, a lot of questions about, again, how we engage as Indigenous peoples in sport. And then whether or not sport really is, in its current form, and its current understanding, uh, is actually in a position to help us decolonize 
or to indigenize or to reconcile or to reclaim, you know, some of our ways of, of knowing and being in the world. I certainly don't have those answers, but, you know, I think the questions have to be asked, you know, about the, the, the importance of sport and other forms of leisure and, and how do we engage it in a good way that allows us to decolonize and, and sort of realize some of these answers, these very hard questions that so many Indigenous scholars are asking. Yeah, and what's been the response in some ways to this idea? I mean, a lot of people, even very well-educated, well-meaning people, you know, we struggle with the idea of an alternative. They look at modern sport and they just conceptually cannot make the leap to another way of doing this. Now, that sometimes betrays a lack of knowledge of history, as you've outlined. The history of human movement predates modern sport. People who do what we do would understand that entirely. But how is it, how do you try and leap that conceptual barrier and trying to get people to understand that modern sport hasn't always just been? It is a construction and invention like any other. Yeah, and I think that that's where, and I'm not by no means an expert in lacrosse, but I think that's where the, the stories around lacrosse particularly can, can add to that discussion. So as an example, you know, lacrosse was part of our creation story. It was viewed as a gift from the creator to a pair of twins who, in our creation story who were fighting against each other. Um, and they used it sort of as a, almost like a proxy for war. But that's only part of it. The other part of the discussion around the cross, though, is that it was part celebration. It was a part recognition of, again, who we are as human beings and how we sort of relate it to the world in sort of a relational way. I think sort of, again, reinforcing the idea that for us um, and our, our way of knowing the world was so much based upon our relations with all these beings and things in the world. And so lacrosse was, a, you know, in, in some ways, a, a celebration of that, a celebration of our history and our understanding of the world and how we came to know the world. The connections aren't very linear that way, but if you knew the whole story, you know, you'd be able to sort of put the pieces together. But as a very short description of traditional lacrosse, it was a game. It didn't really have, you know, standardized rules. You didn't have to have the same number of players on each side. There wasn't standardization in terms of you know, stick length or even balls or field length goals and, and objectives were sort of created on the day and it could last anywhere from a day to, a, you know, maybe a few days to a week, who knows? So it was completely, completely opposite to what we would think of in terms of sport today. But I think, you know, it's important to sort of look at some of those practices and we have other sort of, I guess you could call them physical cultural practices that sort of speak to, again, the idea that what we did for these activities reinforced our notions of relationality, which, you know, I think as modern sport developed and sort of standardized, it's sort of, its objective was to, you know, to create that separation, right? And, you know, to, in, in some ways, sort of create that level playing field for people to engage in, in a way that, you know, made it from one perspective fair and equal and all those types of things, which is fine. But it, it missed fundamentally the understanding that we had that was attached to something like lacrosse or all the other types of activities that we had. So I think, you know, with with traditional games or however you want to conceptualize, you know, our cultural practices, there's a lesson that really is about how Indigenous peoples engaged with the world through these types of activities. And that it was more reflective of our way of knowing and way of being in the world 
that was not sort of this separate sphere of life like sport is today. I think, you know, if we were to really try to reconceptualize sport, then it would have to sort of ask itself, how does it um, maintain that notion of relationality? Or is it being uh, as sustainable as it can be, so to speak, in a way that, again, makes it clear, you know, what are the obligations we have as human beings to the world? I think that talks to what you're doing in the chapter with Richard Norman a little bit. Like there's tensions between Indigenous philosophies and Western notions of sustainable development. Can you unpack those tensions a bit further? I mean, you've already used words like engagement, resources versus relationships. Like what are you getting at with problematizing that term, which frankly does need to be problematized? Yeah, I think when we look at... I think contemporary issues around sustainability, and even if I think if you want to look at it historically, like everything was consumptive to some extent, right? But when you look at modern sport and you look at, you know, the huge amount of resources that go into creating and maintaining modern sport, it's as, as consumptive as most industries or activities out there. And so I think with sport, to sort of realize a, a notion of sustainability, uh, it really has to again, I think, address those issues related to looking at the world as a resource and then trying to figure out then, okay, so what are the connections that maintain sport as a consumptive capitalist uh, institution? And I think if we can sort of try to address some of those issues, then maybe it's a beginning point. If we can think about sport and uh, its connections to capitalism, then we can really start to rethink, you know, a, a different starting point to reconceptualize it. And I think the fact of the matter is it probably would look completely different <laughs> if we really want to adhere to sort of, you know, being more vigilant about our sustainability issues within sport, but then also take a maybe an indigenous perspective on how to engage in sport. It would maybe be reserved for special times and not just something that is happening every day of every hour. It's fun to sort of think about. No, that's what I like about what you do with your work. I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to go back to, you know, frankly, core concepts of how things are structured. Given the sustainability record of capitalism in its latest forms and the settler colonialism in general, it would be an idea to look for some alternatives would be my general observation because, frankly, you know, it's led us to the moment we're in, which is a climate crisis. And as you've pointed out, what you could only describe from a, I suppose, neo or Marxist perspective, the overproduction of content. There is literally every moment of the day a football or soccer game or something going on, much of which is really designed to service gambling markets. Yeah. I refer to sports in terms of its relationship, not only with the extractive industries, but the socially extractive industries. Yes. <laughs> you know, gambling, yep. alcohol, fast food. These are extractive industries, but it is only about raw materials dug out of ground. And I'm in a country that loves digging things out of the ground without actually compensating Indigenous owners in any way. But, yeah, so, I, you know, I do take your point. I'm sorry, I, 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 go, I, I go on a slight rant about these things. But, um, and it's not out of actually a sense of, well, it is actually a bit out of a sense of white liberal guilt, let's face it. But there is something more important to be learnt there beyond the sort of trying to deal with that guilt. 
that there are other ways of organising, other ways of being in the world, other ways of conceptualising of time and space. And that's where, you know, that's what I took from your work. I realise these are big ideas, but it's precisely the fact you're going for these that makes it important. Yeah, and I think, and that's where I'm headed towards now is maybe trying to answer the second part of my my question from my PhD was, you know, if we, if we were to decolonize sport, you know, what would that look like? Because leisure really offers the opportunity, you know, even if it's a Western conceptualization of leisure, it offers the opportunity of an alternative or a different way of being in the world that isn't consumptive. And I think, you know, that's where sort of indigenous philosophies and indigenous ways of knowing and being in the world can sort of really come together with uh, Western concepts and other ways of being in the world where we could look at things like sport as a way to engage with the world and be in the world that is less consumptive and maybe provides us with a different way of being in the world when, you know, we are going through a crisis of capitalism and, you know, a question about what the future of work really means. So I think there's lots of promise in that way. So I, I'm also engaged in looking at this broad movement of land-based education. I'm not a, by any means a land-based educator or have a huge knowledge of sort of traditional knowledge of being out on the land, but you know, it, it holds a lot of promise because again, it speaks to sort of an indigenous way of engaging with the world that is, is different. It, it's, it acknowledges that human beings are not the center of the universe and that we have to you know, think of ourselves as being obligated to be stewards of, of the world and all of our relations in it. So land-based education is very much a, about sort of helping Indigenous peoples to sort of recapture some of that understanding, but then also trying to figure out how do we do it in the contemporary moment. And I think that there is potential then to also though take those teachings from land-based education and then apply it to other other forms or maybe new forms of leisure and sport and, and recreation and physical activity that, again, allows us to be in the world differently that, than just being consumers and workers. So we'll see. <laughs> and the, and which leads me to what was my last question. Like, what is, how do you incorporate your knowledge, your experiences, your perspectives in your teaching? Like, and, and what's the response? You know, how do you bring students into what you're trying to do? Well, I think part of it is, again, trying to focus on the historical piece to raise the critical consciousness of my students around colonialism because so many of them don't have that knowledge of, of what colonialism was and how it operates. If they do have that sort of consciousness, it's always focused on the overt things like you know, war and residential schools and forms of slavery and, and you know, a relocation of Indigenous peoples to reserves and all those types of things. And generally students think just because those things are over with that, you know, colonialism is done and, you know, racism is over. But if I can at least open the door for them to understand that colonialism was so much more than just those overt acts, that they are actually tied to how we think and be in the world, that is then reflected in the way that we engage in things like work and leisure, then hopefully that opens the door to a broader understanding of indigenous ways of knowing and being in the world that are quite different. The problem or the challenge, I guess, is that trying to understand traditional ways of being and traditional knowledges that are so fragmented, it's, it's difficult 
because then you get into that sort of push and pull or that war between well who's right and what's true and what's not but at the base level though i think we we are getting to the point at least in the in the scholarship where indigenous peoples are communicating that this notion of relationality is fundamental to what it means to be indigenous this notion of being in the world is based upon how we relate to everything in the world and that knowledge is very much based upon again those relationships that we uh, engage in and so then once you start sort of putting that front and center of how you engage in the world and that changes i think how you do and go about things um and it's just one other little aside as an example so i'm a mohawk um, and our languages from what i understand and i got this from a colleague of mine he said that so many of our languages were verb based so if you can imagine you know living in a world where the words that you're speaking are based on upon an action how does that then change how you engage with the world and how, what does that mean for how you relate to things in the world things are not then just sort of these inanimate objects that are you know used but actually things that are valuable and um, relate to you in a, in a way that is different than just being a thing so that's sort of what i i'm taking out of a lot of the teachings that i'm learning about relationality and then uh, how I'm trying to bring those ideas into discussions around leisure and, and sport. Yeah, um, it's been a privilege to speak to you. Please keep up the great work, which would be my general message. It's really fascinating what you're doing. Great. Thanks very much for having me, Brad.